if you would humor me, a brief introduction to the text before I read it. There are a few things Jesus says that are very difficult, and the reason is that they are very, very hard to understand. In fact, the more we try, the more we're not sure we understand them. If you were here last week, we had that situation, we had that parable with this unlikely hero of this dishonest, shrewd steward. On the other hand, there are other things Jesus says in the Bible that are difficult too, but for exactly the opposite reason. That being that in their case, we can pretty much piece of cake easily understand what Jesus is saying. It's just that we're not totally sure we want to. Because the meaning is not only crystally clear, it also very easily starts to feel too clear for comfort. Which, as we continue this morning to work our way through the Gospel of Luke, brings us to the Gospel reading today, again from Luke 16, which is by and large a poster child text for the oft-observed adage that the Word of God, when we hear its message in its entirety, does not only comfort the afflicted, it also afflicts the comfortable. And so the Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 16th chapter, glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. Like every pastor who's ever preached, I too on an occasion or two have heard from a complainer or two or five whose com favorite complaint is that all the church ever does is talk about money. It's not true. 
modern native church I've ever served, although of course we do sometimes talk about money during capital appeals, for example, although um, also every year by and large come in November, we uh, start working on the church budget and we, we do believe, I believe, there are some things that we as a church are called by God to do and some of them cost money. And so every year, um, come November, uh, every year again, come next month, I dedicate at least one sermon um, and worship service to, to remind us that that is true and to invite us to challenge all of us, including me, uh, to be faithfully generous because that's true. Today, on the other hand, we find ourselves needing to talk about money, not because it's a church budget time at Gloria Day, but rather because we are people who call Jesus Lord. And in our assigned text for today, money, wealth, unequivocally, crystally clearly, is what he talks about. And he does so in order to make, whether we like it or not, this perhaps too clear for comfort point. If I am blessed with the things of this world, and folks, we live in the United States of America where um, even if we're not one percenters, we and most of us are way blessed by the world's standards with the things of this world. And when Jesus says that if we are blessed with the things of this world, then he goes on crystally clearly to say, and if we then ignore the needs of the poor, the Lazaruses in this world, then that gulf that exists between me and the needs of the poor is actually a gulf that exists between me and Jesus. And what this parable then goes on to say, way too clear for comfort perhaps, is that if I am blessed with the things of this world and then do ignore the needs of the poor in this world, then that gulf that exists between me and Jesus is a gulf, a chasm, he says, that maybe even eternity can't heal. And in this case, that message is so clear that like it or not, and gathered by grace or not, we don't just get it to explain it away. So what I'm gonna do is just leave that parable and its clear truth just right out here uh, here's a table, it's sitting there right in front of us, and, and it, that, that parable is going to watch us and listen to us and just keep on afflicting us, probably just a little bit, as what I want to do is use it as a springboard for a dive into the second text we heard for today, the one from 1 Timothy, which also, as it turns out, you can't get away from it. 1 Timothy is also about money. What I'm going to do today with that gospel reading so clear that we can hardly stand it sitting here like kind of the elephant in the room that it kind of is. What I want to do today is consider with you a few things that I hear First Timothy say about money, not in First Timothy's case having anything to do with any church making any budget, but rather for the sake of making this truth known. You know the complainer or two or five that I mentioned? Not in this church, uh, surely, uh, but in some churches, uh, no doubt. The complainer who, uh, who likes to say that all we ever do is talk about money, they often, in fact, it's almost inevitable, uh, then go add, on to add some version or another of the second complaint that what the church really should be doing is talking about spiritual things. Our reading from First Timothy today is one of the many 
places in the Bible that respond to that by saying that talking about money, not in this case for budgets, but just plain about money and about our relationship with it is precisely a spiritual matter. Jesus said it last week, you can't serve God and wealth. He said it elsewhere in words like these, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. St. Paul, the treasure of whose heart was absolutely Jesus, is the author of 1 Timothy, where, by way of instructing in the ways of faith and faithfulness, a young leader in the church whose name was Timothy writes about precisely spiritual things by, in this text, writing precisely about money, and doing so starting with these words. There is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with ease. Those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmless, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. It occurs to me that surely one of the greatest spiritual virtues and for that matter one of the greatest good things in life in general is also one of the rarest of all great and virtuous good things in the lives of most people, but that the people I've met who know this great virtue are some of the most joyful people that I know. That rare virtue, and when Paul talks about right off the bat in this text, when he says there's great gain, let's be clear, he's in godliness combined with contentment. Contentment. The hearts and souls and minds of the discontent are hearts and souls and minds, I think, that are always full. Those guests crowding the place, being guests whose names are the names of all the things, every single thing that one wants and doesn't have, that guest list of things you just know you cannot be happy unless you have. In order to be happy, you have to have. That guest list never stops ending. There is one thing. Discontent, hearts and souls and minds like that, therefore, are not places where something like happiness or its, its deeper uh, cousin, joy, will ever come and stay. Contentment, on the other hand, is the word used to describe the heart and soul and mind and peace of the person who thinks about all the good things, many of which aren't even things at all, which one does have. And happiness and joy, over and over again, keep permanent bedrooms in a heart like that. 
Did you know, and study after study backs me up, and you can go home and Google if you don't believe me, because I spent some time Googling this week, and I believe me. Did you know that having more money doesn't make people more happy? Actually, I need to fine-tune that. The way I just said it isn't quite true. Actually, what study after study has found is that if you don't have enough for the things you truly do need, if you're a parent, for example, and don't have the money you need to feed and clothe and provide for your children's basic needs, their genuine needs, if you don't have enough money for that, what you truly need, then studies do say you will be happier if you have more money. You are happier if you can uh, provide for your kids than if you can't. But study after study that I saw goes on to say that as you make even more money, that starts being less and less true until finally you reach a point where it turns out it's not true at all anymore. One study I read this week actually put numbers on that by saying that in America these days, um, the turning point seems to be $70,000 or so. As in, there is an observable connection between money and happiness up until about that amount, but beyond that amount, the connection starts to decline observedly and then even rapidly Tell according to this study, um, when you get to about $200,000, the link between money, more money, and more happiness ceases to exist entirely. Thinking there is such an unending link, oh yeah, more, more happiness, more, more happiness. Thinking that link never ends, Paul says, have wandered away from the faith, as in, for example, hoarding, blessing them, and therefore also digging that chasm between uh, Jesus and themselves. The result of which also Paul says is that those who have thought there never ends a link between more money and themselves with many pains. As in, for example, I imagine when they got their more money, only to discover that, darn it, they weren't. Because why? Because the emptiness of hearts and souls act finally with more things. The emptiness of hearts and souls find rather, to use Paul's, I think, beautifully profound phrase, with godliness, God's involved, combined with contentment. That is to say, gratitude for what we do have that is bathed, just swims around in, more and more and more Jesus, who fills emptiness in hearts and minds and souls that only who he can fill and who is able to draw closer to us. That's what he says in that parable. He's able to draw closer to us as we draw closer to the genuine needs of those who don't have. I remind you that as far as both Paul and Jesus are concerned, to talk about money is to talk about, so we can hear Paul go on to say, as he says, for the love of money. The way is on my top ten list of the most often misquoted verses in the Bible. It doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says that the love of money 
is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money, giving our hearts and souls and minds to those promises that money does make but can't keep. There's no place in the Bible I've ever found that says there's anything inherently wrong with being rich. Abraham, after all, who in Jesus' parable welcomed Lazarus to his eternal <coughs> habitations, Abraham, according to the book of Genesis, was rich. He was very, very rich with many, many things of this world, but he was also rich in his care, his concern, his compassion for others, as he was rich in godliness. He wasn't perfect. Only one of those uh, came to this earth, and the earth couldn't stand him, right? He wasn't perfect, but he listened to God. And listening, he knew that the riches that were his weren't actually his. They were gifts, blessings from God, with which he could be and was called by God to be a blessing to others. Which is finally to say that Abraham, that occurred to me this week, a very wealthy man, though he lived some 2,000 years before Paul, was almost himself a poster child for Paul's words in that final paragraph of our reading from 1 Timothy today, where he writes, As for those who in this present age are rich, command them not to be haughty, or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly provides with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good. They are to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of life that really is life. One last thing. I haven't seen a study on this, but I've seen a lot of people when I talk to people. More money does reach a point where it doesn't make you more happy. But doing good being rich in good works and generosity and sharing with your words, your deeds, your time, your talents, and your money as you're able, I don't think those investments ever top out and start yielding, stop yielding a return. Because, well, because in Paul's words precisely, to do good and to be rich in good works generous and ready to share is to take hold of richness that truly is rich and to take hold of life that really and truly is alive. And that, it turns out, is not just good. It feels good. And it keeps on doing so. Amen.